Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that, together, we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, your host at this place on the net where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution. My guest this week brings science and spirituality into the realms of politics, philosophy and activism, so he is a perfect fit. Glenn Edney is an ocean ecologist, a naturalist, a deep ocean diver, an activist for the living ocean and author of three books, the most recent of which is called The Ocean is Alive, Revisioning Our Relationship with the Living Ocean, which absolutely does what it says on the tin. This does for oceans what Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis did for the Earth. It is both deeply informative and deeply moving. It's a story of connection and a terrifying litany of our disconnection. But as with everything like this, it hinges on the concept that we have agency and that we still have time to pull ourselves away from the edge of destruction. So I completely recommend that you add this one to your reading list. And in the meantime, people of the podcast, please welcome Glenn Edney. So Glenn Edney, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast on what is for you a bright and sunny morning in New Zealand. And for us is, is January in Shropshire, so it's not still minus three, but it's pretty cold and wet. How are you? And you're also COVID-free in New Zealand, as far as I can tell. And we're back in lockdown three. Uh, yeah, exactly. Kia ora, man, Amanda. Uh, lovely to be here. Yes, it's uh, it's beautiful here. Uh, sunny, warm. It's summer. And you're right. We are having a very, very different experience with this virus than the rest of the world, probably, actually. Yes, Yes, although I read something yesterday that Thailand apparently has pretty much the same population as the UK, and they've had, uh, I think, 64 deaths total, and we had over a 1,000 yesterday. So, um, so yeah, quite a lot of the world is having a different experience to us, except the US, of course. So, leaving aside the politics, and we will come back to the fact that New Zealand is, New Zealand is a shining beacon, I think, of how we can make the transition from late-stage capitalism to wherever we go next. But before we get there, I have read your book, The Ocean is Alive, now I think three times, and each time something new leaps out to hit me. It's beautiful, it's heartbreaking, and heartwarming at the same time. And I totally encourage anyone listening to this podcast, please go and read it. We're not going to rehearse the book page by page because we want to talk about new stuff. We will talk a little bit about the book, but really do yourselves a favour. If you want to understand the wonder of the ocean, please read Glenn's book. And so, assuming that people have taken that on board, Glenn, tell us a bit about who you are and how you came to write something so moving and so heartfelt. <laughs> well, that's very nice of you to say. And um, growing up in here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, you know, it's very hard to be very far away from the ocean. And I was um, lucky enough to 
uh, get exposure to the ocean at a very young age. And so the ocean has always been part of my life. And um, I was also exposed um, for the very first time to television when I was about five years old, black and white. And my very first thing that I saw on television was a Jacques Cousteau documentary about sharks. And wow. I fell in love with sharks. I fell in love with the idea of uh, being an ocean explorer and my long life held dream at that stage of course was to become a diver and crew member on the calypso with uh, captain jacques boat <laughs> there was a, a slight generational problem uh, <laughs> so i didn't i didn't get to do that but nevertheless i find myself now um some five decades later having led pretty much all of my adult life as an ocean explorer thanks to being here uh, in this beautiful land and also the times that we live in with the, with all of that great exploration that was going on in the 20th century with some of the technology such as scuba and being able to film underwater yes inspiration for young people like me at that time it just opened up a whole new world and so that's that's how it started for me and once you are an ocean being you're always an ocean being that's interesting do you think for people that that once they have begun to immerse themselves in the ocean that's they never stop that is definitely my experience and of course I meet a lot of other ocean people and it seems to be a, a really universal experience. And of course, you know, we have uh, now, we have this great body of uh, psychological research that shows just how much we are affected by even just being near the shore, even watching a film about the ocean uh, has a psychological impact on us and so you know we have this whole idea of blue mind and you know there's no surprise for me in that because the ocean is uh, the largest manifestation of the most fundamental aspect of life which is water you know we ourselves are basically 99% water um, as in 99% of all of the molecules in every single cell of our body are water molecules. So we may be 70% by weight of water, but in real terms, we are 99% water, as is every other life form. And so there's no uh, coincidence that we are drawn to water. Right. I learned so much from this book and really just learning our evolutionary history, which I kind of thought I knew. and hadn't really taken on board the extent to which quite a lot of the water on the planet is of extraterrestrial origin. Did I understand that right? That, that quite a lot came from meteors. Tell Just tell us a little bit about that, just because I find it fascinating. Therefore, I assume our listeners will also. Yes, yes. Well, and, and you know, this is also, um, we're, we're still not exactly sure where all of the water on our planet came from, but we're pretty sure that a uh, really large percentage of it was uh, you know, extraterrestrial, if you like. So um, when our solar system was formed, it was formed with a huge amount of water already here. 
And so as all of the rocks and all of the particles, the dust particles were accreting together, forming our little you know, rocks and, and planetismals and eventually our planets, a lot of water was uh, embedded within those rocks. And so a good percentage of the water that we, that we see on the surface of the planet is water that's outgassed over the five billion years of the history of our planet, particularly in the early years when when things were very, very hot. However, that doesn't really account for all of it, and neither um, does that water account for the specific isotopes of some of the water that we find on our planet. And the only explanation for that water is that it has come from outside of the solar system and at some point now it might have been within our solar system for a long time but it has origins that are outside of our solar system so comets and meteors are the most likely answer to where where a lot of our water has come from but you know um, we also have several oceans worth of water still inside the planet Right. I was reading, you said five to 10 oceans were still under there. So when I panic about the fact that we're all, we're, we're draining down all of the groundwater, there's still quite a lot in there. But is it quite deep down? Absolutely. And the thing, the thing to remember too is, uh, and I don't know if you've got a rock handy, but if you've got a rock, pick up a rock and hold it in your hand and it's solid and it's heavy and it, and it seems impermeable. However, that rock just like everything else, has a really high percentage of water. All the atoms of the universe are mostly empty space. Yes, yes. We're all just bits of vacuum that happen not to fall through each other, which is one of those weird things that does strange things to my head because because we should fall through. We shouldn't just fall through the floor. We should fall through the earth. We shouldn't be solid. It's a really, once you understand the physics of that, I find it really quite mind-bending. Absolutely, it is mind-bending. And so the water molecule, this miraculous thing that uh, probably came into existence somewhere earlier than the formation of the first galaxies. So somewhere in the first billion years of the universe after the Big Bang, the water molecule came into existence. Now the water molecule, you know, two atoms of hydrogen, one atom of oxygen, is one of the most miraculous things that we could possibly imagine and it's miraculous because of what it's capable of doing and we're not we're not even fully aware of everything that water is capable of but just the things that we do know about water absolutely defy the makeup of the molecule so these two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen and the 22 degrees um uh, angle of, of of difference between where that with the hydrogen atoms sit in relation to the oxygen atom, we know that that creates a different positive and negative side to the water molecule. Um, so that explains some small aspects of what water is capable of. The thing for me, what what really gets me about that is when, if you just look at our planet and you look at the evolution of life on our planet, you need to go back before the start of life to really get a sense of how this was possible. And that story is the story of water. So become an ocean planet seems to be somewhat of a prerequisite for the evolution of biological life. Now, 
I'm, I'm saying that because this is our experience and, and there's certainly plenty of theory about the possibility of biological life involving water that doesn't involve an ocean. But we don't have any proof of that, but we have absolute proof of that right here. Right. That if you have an ocean, then there's a reasonable chance that you might have life. It's inevitable. If you, if you have a, a planet with this much water on or near the surface, um, biological life becomes pretty much inevitable. And I think I've got a theory as to why that is. Okay, tell us the theory. Okay, so one of the things that the water molecule does is it is, it is probably the most effective way for energy to be conserved. And so through our principles of thermodynamics, we understand that the universe is a, a finite system that will eventually run out of energy. So we are always heading towards maximum entropy. And the way that we slow entropy down is through the conservation of energy. So in other words, that just simply means that we find ways to keep reusing that energy. And so it's kind of like recycling. We're recycling the energy. And so we're slowing down this sort of, you know, we go from birth into our, into our life, young, middle age, old, and then eventually we die. And so this process is the process of reaching maximum entropy. Now, to slow that down, we need to keep that energy moving and keep it being used. And so energy can never be, we can't get rid of energy, but we can change the way that we use it. And so water uh, is the master of conserving energy and reusing it. So I like to think there's a pot, you know, at least a possibility that the arrival of the water molecule in the universe, if, if we could imagine the universe having some form of sentience way back then, then whatever that sentience was would have been clapping and cheering as the water molecule came into existence. And so for me, it's kind of like inevitable that when you've got this miraculous ability to conserve energy, then that is going to also look for more ways of conserving energy, more ways of being creative with the energy that we have. And biological life is a great way of doing that. So you've got a bunch of water. Um, then for me, it's almost inevitable that you're going to have life. As a way of conserving energy. I hadn't picked that up from the book. That's really interesting. Yeah, and we're talking about physical, you know, the physics of life here, I guess. And, and um, you, know, uh, I, you know, I have some ideas about how that also relates to uh, a spiritual, soulful journey as well. But um, just in pure physics of it, the abundance of water with uh, all of the other elements that are there and water is the great facilitator of bringing things together mm. and there's no boundaries in 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 water there are no fences and so the coming together of all of the ingredients of life becomes possible and um, when you've got a lot of time and you've got all the ingredients there sooner or later the recipe is going to get right and um and, and here we are yeah Five mass extinctions down the line and another one in process. But let's let's talk about that later. Because because this is so what we have is 
water and biological life as as emergent properties of perhaps a way of conserving energy. But what we get to in your book is that the whole ocean itself is a sentient being in the way that Lovelock proposed Gaia herself was a sentient being. So can we fast forward a bit? Because there's so much in terms of ocean physiology, the thermohaline and the thermocline, if I am saying those correctly and correct me if I'm not, but the sense that there, there's extraordinary physiological interactions that if we were viewing them from the outside, we wouldn't look at as simply weather or climate patterns, but we would look at as the organ processes of an intact biological being. And that some of the species within, the things that you describe, the ways that the sperm whales moving up and down through the layers of water are actually an integral part of the recycling of minerals within the ocean. So we have what to us is inanimate water interacting on a vast, vast scale with what to us we are beginning to understand as sentient beings in a way that makes total coherent sense and has its own internal logic that we are disrupting, but we'll talk about that later. Can we talk a little bit about this idea of the ocean being alive? Mm, certainly, yes. Well, I guess the, the, the starting point for that is to really try and get our head around where the idea came from that environment and life are actually separate things. So this idea that we have animate life and inanimate substrate to life, the background. Yes. That idea is a is actually a relatively new idea. It's like, you know, only about 400 years old. Which in the time scale of the universe is very small. It's a very small one. It's also even very small in terms of the human experience. You know, we've been around, just our species, been around for at least a couple hundred thousand years. And so for most of that time, we have experienced ourselves and the rest of life as one and not separate from our environments. And so the idea that, that that it is a separate thing has really come out of the Enlightenment period and uh, and the scientific revolution without going into, into uh, boring details about that. Basically, European thought of the 1600s and 1700s uh, really needed to believe that human exceptionalism was real. Yeah. In other words, we were different, we were separate, uh, and not only were we different and separate from the rocks, the, the mountains, the rivers, but we were different and separate from the rest of life. Now, um, the funny thing is that once we'd separated ourselves out, um, for first of all, and a long time before that, of course, we were separating ourselves from the rest of life. You know, we, we with our agriculture and with uh, w you know with the Greek philosophy starting to think about the ideal that which is above the the physical world. 
So, you know, that was already set in motion. But when we really started to think about ourselves as being completely separate from the rest of life, we were able to then say, well, we've got environment, we've got life, and then we've got humans. Hmm. And that served a definite purpose. You know, we were also starting to get to the point where we wanted to utilize life in a much more materialistic way than we had been up until that point. And so, uh, you know, it would be very inconvenient for us if we had to consider the rest of life um, as being on an equal footing to us. So our old animistic perspectives needed to go. And those animistic perspectives never separated life from environment, you know, um, as I, I think I might have even used this one in my book, you know, to separate the, the sunbathing lizard from the sunbaked rock. It is pointless. Yeah. It can't exist without the other. So for me, in terms of the ocean as a living being, the idea of separating the water from the life in the water, so separate the ocean medium um, from life within it, is completely pointless. I mean, and, it, and it's, it, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. How can there be ocean organisms without ocean? Uh, they cannot be separated. And so we have to then go, well, what kind of psychological purpose was that serving to come up with that idea and, and to actually then get a set of beliefs around that idea? Around the idea of separation, you mean? Yeah, around the idea of separation. So, you know, obviously yes. there were good reasons for doing it at the time. But what we're starting to see now, of course, is that, you know, the holes are appearing and those holes are pretty big in that belief system. When we actually, you know, look at our modern science of, you know, particularly um, what we're understanding about the chemical nature of the universe, quantum physical nature of the universe, you know, the idea of, of there being any kind of separation at all now, of course, in the light of what we understand scientifically, let alone what we understand spiritually. I come to this a lot in the kind of spirals of my own thinking. If it doesn't make any sense, we have to move ourselves back to an understanding of being part of a web of life. That's that's a given. But I have not found for myself an answer to why was it necessary to separate. I can see that it was necessary at one level because it gave us a sense of mastery, it gave us a sense of being able to control things that are uncontrollable, and it gave a sense of being able to have degrees of agency that perhaps we felt we lacked as we eased ourselves away from being part of a greater whole. But I haven't ever really answered the question of why. Do you have a sense of something good that could have come out of these maybe 10 millennia of separation? <laughs> um, well, can I think of something good? Uh, <laughs> there must be a reason. I just don't know what it is. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure if this is, uh, you know, I'm not sure if, if I'm even clear in my own mind about this entirely, uh, but my sense is that, um, as we started to not only remove ourselves physically from our environment of life, we were also removing ourselves spiritually and soulfully uh, from the rest of life. And we 
we did that by elevating uh, the soul and the spirit to a realm over and above our physical experience, our daily experience. And so for that to make any sense, because our lived experience was ensouled, and so now we've got this idea that actually that's not the case, that the ensouling of life happens elsewhere. It happens over and above our physical lived experience. It happens in a realm that is separate from our lived experience. And we can only attain that realm through a set of spiritual or religious practices. And so, you know, if that if that is something that you are striving for, um, then you're really going to need to truly believe in separation. That's as far as I've got, really. It, it, to be honest, it's as far as I've, I've bothered to go because what I find when I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't like labels, but I suppose if I was being labelled, I'd probably be labelled as an animist um, in lots of ways. And, um, you know, I, I'm just, I, I find myself that takes up enough of my energy, um, particularly um, when I when I sort of apply my mind to articulating that, that takes up enough of my energy just to actually do that without <laughs> without trying to explain how come we, we moved away from that. Okay, so in that case, and this is going in a different direction from what you and I had planned, but I think it's really interesting. The overwhelming majority of people on this planet currently are so adhered to a separate mindset that they believe it's the way the world is. Hmm. You know, outside of the bubbles that you and I might live in, hmm. the rest of the world believes that humanity is both separate and superior. How do we help to bring people to a more connected mindset? Have you had any practice and experience at that? Mm. Well, for me, my work is in the ocean and around the ocean. And so uh, I just concentrate on connecting people with the ocean. So storytelling um, is, is a big part of that. Uh, and and the stories that we that we share with each other, they influence how we see the world. And so, you know, we've we've got now you know, um, what, you know twenty thirty generation old story of you know the absolute separation of humanity and human exceptionalism. And so that's a very powerful story. And of course, if you were you know, growing up without any exposure to any other story besides that one, I completely understand why you would never dream that there's something different, except what happens when the world shows itself to you in a way where you where you experience non-separation. And I think that that's mm. where the key is for me, is to facilitate uh, for people, experiences of non-separation. And for me, the place where I find that easiest to do anyway, and I kind of think the best place to do it, is in the ocean. Is in the ocean. 
Yes, and you have so many stories in the book. Right at the start, the one of this where you're connecting with the humpback whale, and then others. There's a manta ray at one point, and tell tell us a story, Glenn, because I'm saying these things are in the book, and people haven't read the book. Tell us any story of your experience in the ocean of total deep connection that will resonate with people listening. Mm, okay, well, the the humpback whale communion, I'll call it, is, uh, is something that was so life-changing that maybe I should tell it. I was I, Immediately I thought about telling an octopus story because everybody's kind of probably loads of people have seen. Yes, my octopus teacher. All I can say is I've had that experience and it's true the octopus is a great teacher and I've had one of those experiences and that, that was an experience of how to be present to another's perspective and especially when that other is so very other from myself Mm. Uh, so that was brilliant but you know yeah so but people are aware I think now of 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 octopuses so my communion with the humpback whale was something not of my choosing and this happened after six years of of working on a daily basis through the breeding season with humpback whales uh, being in the water spent hundreds and hundreds of hours in the water with humpback whales and this just happened to be, uh, wasn't intended, but it happened to be the very last time I was in the water with humpback whales, way back in 2010. And in this instance, uh, we were cruising along on our sailing catamaran looking for whales. We had our passengers, we were running whale watching, whale swimming operation in the Kingdom of Tonga, and uh, we were looking for whales, and you know, when you're looking for whales, one of the things you're looking for, of course, is the blow. You're hoping that you're going to see that big spout of, of water, um, which is the which is the out-breath of the whale, and uh, so we're all busy looking for that, and then we are d- directly in front of us, no more than 100 metres in front of us, this 40-ton female humpback whale just exploded down the water in a full body breach so in other words wow. 15 meters and 40 tons of whale absolutely clearing the water there's there's air between what between her tail and the surface of the ocean now when she cas- crashes back into the surface it's like a tidal wave a tsunami and 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 it's just amazing but when it happens that close to you um it's all disconcerting so I spun the wheel of the boat and we came up into the wind and and my partner Janie and crew dropped the sails and all of this time I was starting to feel some really deep pull to get into the water uh, very unlike anything I'd felt before and so by the time we'd got the boat to a to a stop the mother and her calf had come to a stop also directly in front of the boat. Now, remembering that we were going one direction, the whale breached in front of us and we turned the boat 180 degrees in the other direction. By the time we were stopped, the mother was now back in front of us, just laying at the surface. And it was about that point I really started feeling this really strong pull just to get in the water, um, which is exactly what I did. And I let poor Janie out back on the boat to brief uh, passengers about what was going to happen and all of the rules about getting in the water with whales, which I completely ignored. And, uh, 
ninja. Do what I say, not what I do. Yeah, I just grabbed my my fins and my mask and snorkel, didn't put a wetsuit on, and and just got in the water by myself, and I was just finned uh, towards the whale. And as I was getting closer to her, I was just feeling this stronger and stronger and stronger energy pulling me in. And so I it was like I couldn't even stop. And by the time I did stop, I was only about three metres away from her. And we never get that close. You know, we always stop just within visual range. But there I was, that close. And I actually, just to cut a long story short, really, what I, I started to feel was I actually felt her presence entering into my body and entering into my consciousness and so and it was like there was no choice about this. He was just entering into my consciousness and I was just finding myself. And if you can imagine this, I'm in the water laying on my, on my stomach, you know, face down in the water. And, and I just found myself actually becoming vertical in the water. So head up and feet down. And then I opened up my arms and I wasn't even really aware of doing this but I had my arms wide open and that whole you know that stance of that posture of supplication and like you know completely completely opening my body and my soul um, to this presence that was entering into me and um, from from there she just took me on a journey of consciousness a journey into her consciousness, and by the way, the calf was present in this. I, w- I was experiencing the calf, the calf's emotions. The calf was frightened by what was going on. I was frightened as well. Right. And what I was then feeling was that the mother was actually just calming both of us down. Um, it was incredible. And so, yeah, she took me on this journey, um, first of all, really into my own consciousness where it was like she was kind of probing me to I don't know I I I feel like she was probing me to see if there was something that I understood um which I didn't understand but there was something in me that is actually you do understand you just you're not you're not touching it yet um and then she took me on a journey into her body her consciousness and so I was experiencing her from within and it was just you know it was amazing and then the other thing that happened was I started to get this really strong sense of expansiveness like I was actually I had no more physical boundary uh to you know my body had dissolved and I was just expanding out into the ocean and this was this was a physical expansion and a, and a consciousness expansion, and that was the moment when that started to happen that I realised that what she was actually showing me was non-separation. That everything is completely connected. There is no separation, even from the physical and the spiritual and the and the mental and emotional from that sort of that consciousness aspect and the physical aspect they are one and the same there is no separation from any of it and what she was showing me um, through that experience was that the ocean is the living body right uh, and, and we cannot separate ourselves from that living body and that's what took me on the journey uh, actually 
over to the UK to study with wonderful Stephen Harding, that beautiful uh, gynecologist and deep ecology practitioner at Schumacher College. Yes, I know him. And so under his guidance, I really delved into Gaia theory and so on, and and that's what led to the writing of The Ocean is Alive. So it was that that beautiful experience with the whale, though, which, you know, um, a very overused uh, saying because it, it really changed my life. <laughs> yeah, and the book arose out of that and must have changed other people's lives. It sounds so profound and yet I wonder how do we get 7 billion people to experience all of this? Was it, so when you said in the journey of consciousness when she was kind of probing inside you trying to see was there something that you understood, it was this oneness that she was endeavouring to find did you already understand it and and finding perhaps that there was an edge of you that did she was then able to lead you into the experience am I understanding correctly yeah that's pretty much how I uh, how I see it yeah in a way this understanding I think is within all of us it's it's kind of in our makeup because we are Mm. water Basically, we're animated water, as, as Vladimir Vernadsky, the great Russian scientist, said. We are just animated water. And so, uh, in a way, we can't help but have that knowledge within us. It's just the matter of accessing it, that. And, and so, you know, the, that for me is the great hope. Uh, you know, uh, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't I'm, I'm not, that uh, susceptible to blind optimism, um, but I, I, have, I have a great sense of of hope um, for humanity because we're not separate, because we are a part of this whole journey. We have a belief system that we're not, but that belief system is the thing that's delusional. It's not humanity itself. Um, humanity is a part of this, and so for me, that's. Yeah, the the work of connecting with people, uh, you know, is, is already happening, and the pace is quickening. Uh, you know, the, exactly what you're doing, Amanda, with your podcast and your writing, uh, with individual connections, I, for me, is the strongest and most powerful. And Mother Teresa's beautiful words, you know, we we may think that what we're doing is but a drop in the ocean, but the ocean will be less without that drop. And that, that one-on-one work with people, we don't know what ripples that creates and what tsunamis might grow out of those ripples. And so that work is so worth doing. And, and the other thing that really, you know, gets me up in the morning is that complete understanding that I'm not the only one doing this, that there are millions of people doing exactly the same thing all around the world, connecting with another individual. And so, you know, this, this, it is a wave of consciousness, if you like. And um, how to reach 7 billion people will start with one at a time is, is how I see it. Yes, and move it out. And you live in New Zealand and Without getting too fangirl about Jacinda Arden, she does seem to be pretty unique amongst world leaders at the moment. I have hopes for Nicola Sturgeon, but who knows. Um, And so tell us, because what you have in New Zealand almost uniquely is 
is a degree, at least, of honouring of the Indigenous peoples by the white people. You have a treaty that is kind of being honoured, and you have a dialogue that seems to me really alive and centred on the ocean because the Maori were Polynesian and the ocean was obviously integral to their culture in ways that it possibly isn't to say people indigenous to the Amazon. Can you tell us a little bit about how that's influencing the way that you think and the way that the people you're connected to think? Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, thank you. Yes, well, um, yeah, Jacinda, we're really happy that we've got Jacinda. We're not slightly envious at all. Sorry. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, we are happy to share, but as long as you give it back. Um, yeah, and, <laughs> and yeah, I agree with you. you know, she is a really political force. Um, she's a really unique person in the political realm, I think, um, because she's really real. Um, she's genuine. And she's kind. Yeah, a, a lot of us in New Zealand are, are pretty darn happy that that she's our prime minister. Um, and there's not that many that are unhappy that she is. Um, but you know, she's still a politician, and she's still got her her agendas and all of that sort of thing. And still, we still have some pretty robust dialogue um, over here as well. And there's plenty of dissent about um, things. But what you touched on, I think, um, is even more fundamental here. You know, um, th- this land here, this continent of Zealandia, which we now understand we're, we're a continent now, and it, it's unique in the world um, for its isolation. And it was the last piece of land to be colonised by humanity. And when the ancestors of today's Māori arrived here, um, and we don't know exactly how long ago. Um, some of our archaeological evidence suggests that it's somewhere between maybe 1,000 and 1,200 years ago, maybe a little bit less. Um, some of the genealogy from the Māori genealogy suggests that it may actually be longer than that. And, of course, there's, we have this, there's a conflict right there because you've got a science, the science of archaeology and carbon dating and so on, saying, no, look, well, well, this is what we can prove. And then you've got this oral history that says, well, actually, it was quite a lot longer than that. Now, for 200,000 years, humans have been practicing the art of oral history um, and through storytelling. And the the continuity and the accuracy of that is pretty well documented. And now we have our modern way of dating things, um, but it relies on very small pockets of evidence. The fossil records, for example, are a really good example. You know, we, we, we try to get our idea about what, what life was like three million years ago from fossil records, but the fossil records will tell us only what they can tell us. And so Maori are all, the ancestors arrived here at some point and they were the first people to, to put their human footprints in the sand here. Um, and they were the great voyagers. The, the voyages of Oceania um, were the greatest expansion um, into the ocean uh, that ever has ever happened. Uh, and the invention of human-based navigation, the invention of human-based stargazing. And I'm saying human-based because navigation has been going on in the ocean for millions and millions and millions of years. 
Um, I like to think of it this way. For me, this is really affirmed when I talk to Māori people who are knowledgeable about the navigational practice. Navigation is a knowledge process. Anybody who wants to navigate has to learn how to participate in that knowledge process. So for me, the idea of navigation is something that is in the ocean. So the turtle finding her way back to her natal beach, the hammerhead shark uh, finding his way to the cleaning stations 3,000 miles away. Mm. So the early voyages of Oceania participated in this knowledge process as well, and they developed their starcrafts. They developed all of the means by which they could never be lost. The idea of being lost is just something that's been overlaid by Western thought. Okay. If you're an integral part of the ocean, then you're you're never not part of it. I think one of the things um, for me that, that sums that up really well is that here in this part of the world, the ocean is seen as the thing that connects people, whereas huh. the Northern Hemisphere in, yep. in Europe... It's in, the thing that separates us. It separates. And so... The ocean is also mother, and the personification of the ocean in Māori, for Māori and for some of the other uh, Pacific peoples, um, her name is Hini Moana. How Māori see the ocean is as an ancestor, as an ancient and venerable ancestor. Now, what I think is important to understand, and maybe this leads a little bit into what the situation is here at the moment uh, with with our relationship, our changing relationship with with Māori here is that uh, the idea of an ancestor is not a historic idea. Your ancestors are always with you. Now, that that's uh, also a concept that many Indigenous peoples around the world understand and experience more than understand they experience their ancestors are with them all the time so this this idea of linear time right. um is also a concept that you know, we take for granted um as being true um, but for many peoples um the idea of linear time uh is just a new idea that that um is part of the colonizing process if you like we have two languages here, two official languages. We have English and we have Māori now, or te reo, as it's known. Up until the last couple of decades, um, or, you know, I probably should say three or so decades, there was an absolute danger of te reo going extinct. And it was illegal and it was forbidden, um, just like in so many other places around the world. But then some really brave and courageous Māori, they saw this happening and they weren't prepared to let that happen. And so they started uh, re-engaging with their language. And we to the point now where our place names are now bilingual. So, you know, New Zealand is Aotearoa New Zealand. And what I'm starting to learn, and I guess what many more other Pākehā are starting to learn, Pākehā is the, is the Māori name for uh, us um, latecomers. Uh, and, and it's not a derogatory term. Um, I grew up 
believing that it was a derogatory term, but it's not not a derogatory term at all. And one of the very important fundamental aspects of Māori culture is a thing called manakitanga, um, which is your generosity and welcoming of visitors. Uh, and as a host, your responsibility to look after your visitors is absolutely paramount. It's one of the most important concepts, manakitanga. Even as they're destroying the land that you've loved for generations. <laughs> Great. Despite all of that, this is still absolutely paramount, and 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 it's just as well because you know what is happening here now in Aotearoa is because Maori are making it happen. The reason that they that they are doing that fundamental one fundamental reason is that in 1840 the Treaty of Waitangi was signed. So in Maori that is Te Tūriti o Waitangi. And that was signed between a representative of Queen Victoria and a collection of Māori chiefs. Now, quite a few Māori chiefs signed this document, and they signed it in good faith, and the treaty was written in Māori. Um, there was no English version. It was just in Māori. An English version was written some weeks later. Uh-huh. And did it say the same thing? No, it was substantially different. And that treaty was taken around the country to try and get chiefs to sign it. Um, I think from memory only about seven chiefs actually signed that English version. Anyhow, you know, we, we skip forward now, um, you know, to, to 2020 or 2021, and what we, what we have now in this country is, is, is a, a journey. Um, and it's a journey not just of reconciliation, it's a, it's a journey of forging something new uh, that honours the treaty. We have to go on that journey together, and, and that's exactly what's happening here. And it's, not, it's certainly not easy, and, and it's by no means uh, is it perfect, and there are still huge inequalities here. Māori still make up a huge percentage of prison represented in, in, in poverty and health and all of those all of those things so there's an awful long way to go um, but I but I think it is fair to say that we we have started a really really fundamentally good journey and is it we, we're going to have to draw to a close shortly because we're heading towards the end of our time but I'm really interested in this journey this possible fusion of Western thinking and indigenous connected animistic thinking is it filtering through into general New Zealand culture in ways that are leading to systemic change or is that a fantasy too far? That is such a good question, Amanda, and I'm really happy to say that the answer is yes, it is filtering through, um, not always, um, but I'll give you a couple of examples, and I think they relate also to the other things that we've been talking about. So the idea of um, legal personality for a place is, is something that you know many of us around the world see as a pathway to a more healthy relationship between humanity and and the planet. 
Now, and it's also a really old idea because many indigenous cultures, um, you know, hold that the the mountains, the rivers are living beings. They are ancestors. Um, they are beings in their own right and you have relationships with them so it's an old idea that's getting a a a new kind of facelift if you like and so here um in in new zealand in aotearoa we have legal personality for the whanganui river um, which is a beautiful river system so the whanganui river is legally recognized as a living being wow why just that river ah yeah well (laughs) Because, uh, another great question, the reason just that river at the moment is because the Māori of the river have spoken on behalf of the river. Okay. And they've worked really, really hard. And the other thing I would say is that the rest of New Zealand listened. Not everybody, of course, but enough listened so that um, our government said, yeah, okay, this is... We recognise this. This has since happened also with a mountain range, a beautiful hill country native forest um, called Te Uruwera. And Te Uruwera is also uh, has legal personality as a living being. Okay. For me, the next step is we recognise the ocean in the same way. Okay, so, and so each of these is a vanguard and, and other legislation can follow once the precedent has been set. Yes, absolutely. Is this being taken up around the world anywhere else? Have you noticed this rippling out? Yeah, so there are other places. So um, the Ganges is one uh, that followed suit. So, yes, this is starting to really have ripples around the world. Mm -hmm. No surprise there. Everything's connected. And the work that I'm going to the research work that I'm going to be involved in over the next three years is exactly around this. So, a lot of my work is based around uh, connecting to the life force of the ocean. Now, in Maori, that life force is known as the Maori, and the Maori is uh, is the essential life force that inhabits everything, Ooh. and is is the primary source of Maori. Can we come back and talk to you in three years and find what you got to? That sounds so interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's so many positive things that we can look to. And and in the times that we're in at the moment, where, you know, and you know, we here in New Zealand have to be humble um in when we when we talk about our our situation with COVID because we're very aware that other people are having a much different and and a happy experience of it. Is that that it also provides you know, and I don't want to upset anybody or, or insult anybody, but this is providing us with some incredible opportunities as well to rethink, yes. to take a step back, and and where should we look if we want to reset ourselves around the stuff you know to to rethink our place uh where should we look we need to go to the places stephen harding called them you know, we need to go to our gaia places um but those places where where we lose ourselves um and then find our wider self our ecological self yes. uh and and most people will have had that kind of experience. They'll be walking in the forest or down by the beach or along the river or just sitting under a tree. They will be able to recognise that experience. Yes. And 
you know, this this virus um, is one of those opportunities yeah. um, for us to do that. And, you know, my great friend, um, Jill Coombs, who I know you know, she does this every morning yes. when she goes walking. You know, she walks in that way every morning. So this is, you know, it's a morning routine for her. And, and you know, so this is possible for all of us. Yeah, it just so happens for me that, you know, it's it's in the ocean that it happens. But <laughs> yeah. But if, even if you're landbound, you can find connection to the web of life in the natural world. The thing is, it's hard to find it when you're locked in concrete, but you just need a bit of green and a bit of blue. Yeah, you're so right. It's really, really hard. But I guess one of the things that is really important to remember is that, you know, if you might be locked in concrete, um, but that doesn't make you separate. Yes. Nothing makes you separate. Yeah. Only an idea has made you separate uh, in your thinking and in your belief, but in reality, you never were and you never will be. That, I think, I have half a page of questions that I still wanted to ask you, but I think, actually, we're hitting our hour and that sense that you never are and you never will be separate and that whether you're scuba diving in the ocean or walking in the forest or just looking out of a window and looking up at the sky, you can still connect to that sense of wholeness. That feels like a really good place to stop. I think we'll come back. I want to come back. Maybe when you're just partway through your studies and find where you're getting to, that would be so inspiring. But in the meantime, Glenn Edney, thank you so much for coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast. Oh, well, thanks so much, man. It was really good fun. I enjoyed it. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Glenn for taking us deep into the world of the living ocean and for connecting us to the living languages of the land that is his home. As 2021 launches with such extraordinary challenges, this really does feel to me like a time when we're being called to step beyond ourselves, to abandon business as usual forever and find a new way forward, however we can do it, on land or in the sea, or in the air. And the more we understand the mediums that we move in, the easier that's going to be. So really do read Glenn's book. It's beautiful. It's full of fantastic stories and amazing meditations. And it's really moving. And it's a real call to action. I totally recommend it. We will be back next week with another conversation. And in the meantime, thanks to Cara C for the sound engineering and the music. Thanks to Faith for the website. And thanks to you for listening. If you like what you hear and want to support us, there's a Patreon button on the website at accidentalgods.life. It's not a tiered system. I absolutely do not plan to put anything behind a paywall. But if you have the means, we would appreciate your support. And as ever, if you know of anybody who would like to be active in the generative dance of the world, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.